Thank you so much for joining us for Ankeny Gospel Church Podcast. On this podcast, you can find sermons, classes, and other resources that continue to invite us into the mission of Jesus and the journey of faith. We hope this is a blessing to you, and if we can help you in any way, feel free to reach out. Well, uh, let's exchange greetings this morning. Good morning. Good morning. I, uh, I want to continue in this posture of worship. Um, and start with with prayer and, and reading a verse from Isaiah. This morning during our equipping hour, we, uh, as a church, everybody who was here, we gathered together and we just prayed for like 45 minutes. It was amazing. We were praying for the lost, praying for healing, praying for um, each other, and it was just beautiful. So I want to continue in that posture of worship and, and read this verse from Isaiah and then start with prayer. Isaiah 56 verse 7 says this, I will bring them to my holy mountain, I will let them rejoice in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and sacrifices will be acceptable on my altar, for my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. Father, we ask right now in this moment that you would make us a house of prayer, that we would not do anything without you, that you would show us who you are, you would show us your glory, You'd show us your character, your love, and then that would just expel all other desires, Lord. Allow us to see and value and, and acknowledge a surpassing value of knowing you, God. Be with us as we open Philippians and continue to walk through your word uh, given to us. We pray all these things in your son's name and by the power of the Holy Spirit in us. Amen. Amen. Uh, Thomas Chalmers was a 19th century Scottish pastor and theologian, and he has this this, uh, sermon called The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. And the title is actually going to be up here on the screen. Yep. The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. And guys, this this sermon, if you can like put up with old English, like old, you know, 19th century Scottish English, uh, then you should totally read. You can literally just like, this is public domain. You can Google this and you can and read it on a PDF file or whatever. Uh, but in this sermon, it's based off the verse 1 John 2.15, which says, love not the world nor the things of the world. If any man loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. And he starts off by saying that every human being, every person has desires. Every person's heart has affections it has loves it has admirations and and those desires those loves those admirations they actually change the way we live uh, to the point where we actually become what we desire uh james k smith has this book that says you are what you love and in it he argues the same thing every single person to to be a human means that our heart longs for something it desires something and what we desire what our heart desires is uh, it, it, we become that. So, uh, you know, a little example is if you love a sports team, you're going to wear their jersey. If you love control, you're going to try to be the boss If you of your own life. If you, you know, whatever you love, you end up becoming that. If you love health, then you're going to become a person who is, uh, is at the gym a lot. You're going to become a healthy person. And the question that Chalmers' sermon seeks to answer is how do we change those desires? Because we can't change those desires of our heart, the affections of our heart, the loves of our heart. We can't just change it by like, like if we don't want those desires, we can't just change those desires by saying like, hey, stop, you know, stop having those desires. You know, you can't like reason your way into into getting out of those desires. You also can't change those desires by just getting rid of desire completely because 
he argues that every heart has a throne and whatever's on like it has the throne has to be occupied 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 it has to be occupied and uh you can't just get rid of desires at all rather the only way chalmers argues that the only way to change a desire is actually to place another and a greater desire in front of it when that happens the former desire becomes sidelined and the new desire takes its place. So the way to change desires is to put something greater in front of a desire. Let me give you, this is all kind of like, you know, ethereal and hypothetical. Let me give you two illustrations, one silly illustration and one serious illustration. And yes, I did just say the word silly. One silly illustration. I have a dog named Raleigh and uh, he loves to sit in uh the downstairs and in front of the sliding glass door to the backyard he loves to sit in front of the sliding glass door to the backyard and he loves to look at the squirrels and i'm convinced the squirrels know that he's there that he's watching and he'll just sit there and like just stare at these squirrels and then chipmunks come along and he's just i mean his my dog raleigh his desires his heart his affections if he has such things uh are towards those squirrels now if I didn't, if he wanted to change those desires or I didn't want him to desire squirrels, I would not just try to remove squirrels completely or say like, hey, Raleigh, you should really stop desiring squirrels. That would not be an effective way to expel the first desire. Uh, I would also not lodge, sit down and try to reason with my dog, not only because he's a dog and he can't reason, but also because like, I, I'm not going to sit down and be like, hey, Raleigh, let's think about this logically. Uh, you are not fast. What, what do you, if I open that door, you are not fast enough to catch these squirrels. You have to like go down these porch steps and then you have to try to run to the tree. And by that time, they're already at the top of the tree. So that's first of all. Second of all, even if you did catch a squirrel, Raleigh, what are you going to do with it? Huh? You're just going to like, you're just going to like keep it in your mouth. What you can't eat. What are you going to swallow it whole? You can't do that. Like, let's think through this. That would not, that would be a foolish way to get rid of a desire. Instead, what I do or what is effective is when I take the glass jar full of treats and I rattle it and he hears the treats, then all of a sudden it's as if the squirrels and chipmunks didn't exist because he hears the treats and maybe I open the jar and he smells the treats and he comes running to me, sitting at my feet, wagging his tail, begging, waiting for uh, me to give him a treat. What just happened? I put a newer and a greater desire in front of my dog's eyes and nose and stomach such that he all of the, his desire for squirrels and chipmunks was sidelined it was an expulsive power of a new affection there was a new affection the treats that had a power to expel the prior affection does that make sense that's a silly example let me give you a serious example one that's a little more somber think of a sin in your life Think of a sin that you've struggled with for some time. Maybe it's impatience. Maybe it's being easily irritated. Maybe it's lust or pornography. Maybe it's discontentment. Maybe it's a, a lack of trust in God, a sinful anxiety. Maybe it's a, a spiritual pride. You're never wrong and nobody else understands how life works quite like you do. Maybe it's gluttony. Maybe it's indulgence. Think of a sin in your life. Now, when you think of fighting that sin or getting rid of that sin, what does not work? Well, what doesn't work 
is sitting down and trying to logically reason your way out of that affection, out of that desire, out of that sin. Because the ultimate, the, the, the reality is, is that we love sin. That's why we keep doing it. But reason doesn't work because sin at its core is illogical. It is not reasonable. So we can't just sit down with a sin in our life and say like, okay, well, these are the desires that I have. I desire this. I desire that. I don't want to. So how do I change those desires? Well, I should just stop it altogether. Well, that never works. Well, I should just reason my way out of it. Well, that never works because clearly we're still struggling with the same sins. The point of Chalmers' sermon is that it's not enough to just try to reason our way out, but rather what we do is we need to put a greater and a newer and a better affection, a better desire at the forefront of our minds, of our hearts, such that all the other desires in our lives seem insignificant. They don't even look good. They don't even taste good. They don't even smell good because we have just been so enamored with, encapsulated by a new desire. And that desire is and can only be the gospel of Jesus Christ. The desire that can quench all other desires is only Christ himself. Here's what Chalmers himself says, and this is a quote that'll be on the screen. We know, check this out. We know of no other way by which to keep the love of the world out of our heart than to keep in our hearts the love of God. We cannot keep the love of the world out of our hearts, except when we keep the love of God in our hearts. This is exactly, this reality, this reality that Chalmers is explaining, this reality that you and I have experienced probably daily is exactly what Paul experienced in his own life and exactly what Paul writes about in Philippians 3. Paul experienced the expulsive power of a new affection and it changed his life from the inside out. Nothing was the same. If you remember, Paul on the road to Damascus was persecuting the church. And that's what that's what his desire was. That's what his affection was. That's what his heart longed for at the time. And then all of a sudden he had a new affection. Jesus, when he said, uh, uh, Paul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? He said, I am Jesus, who you, whom you are persecuting. In that moment, he realized the glory of God and all other affections were expelled. They were, they were sidelined. So with that, let's turn to Philippians 3 and, and look at it up close. And we're just going to walk through this text um, bit by bit and uh, and then go from there. So we're, we're in Philippians. And if you remember, the last couple of weeks, we've been talking about uh, the, the, how everything is based on the Christ hymn in uh, chapter 2. In chapter 2, we have this beautiful Christ hymn that basically says the God that we serve is Yahweh, is Lord, and Jesus is also Yahweh and Lord, and he is a self-emptying, self-humbling, obedient Savior. That's who Jesus is. And then after that, Paul says, you know, we need to, because of that, we need to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. We need to work because God is the one working in us. And then last week, Tom did a great job explaining uh, two examples of that. You know, it's easy to say like, oh, well, Jesus is self-emptying and self-humbling, but that's really, you know, that's really spiritual. So like, what does that look like in day to day? Well, Timothy and Epaphroditus are two examples at the end of Philippians 2 of like, hey, it's not just something that like Jesus does. It's actually something that like pretty normal average dudes can do as well, which means that we uh, uh, here today at AGC can follow the same pattern of self-emptying, self-humbling, obedient love. So then we get to chapter three. And uh, look at verse one with me. Paul says this, in addition, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. 
to write to you again about this is no trouble for me and it's a safeguard for you. So he says this this repeated refrain, rejoice in the Lord. If you remember, joy and rejoicing is not the main theme of Philippians. It is a byproduct of the main theme of Philippians. The main theme of Philippians is the way up is down. Salvation, vindication, deliverance from sin, from death, from evil, from the enemy are only possible when we adopt the same pattern, the same mindset in Christ who had everything and gave it all in a self-emptying, self-humbling, obedient love. Then, so Paul, Paul is saying like, hey, because of all this, rejoice in the Lord. And uh, he says to write to you again. So Paul, there are some letters that Paul exchanged with the Philippians, some other thing, other letters that he had that we don't have. Um, and this is probably what follows is probably like a, a little, you know, a little uh, excerpt, if you will, from maybe another letter. So he's saying, Hey, I've written this to you again. Uh, but don't worry. Like, it's good that I say this to you again. And then look at this transition in tone in verse two, like in verse one, we're like rejoicing, rejoicing. And then all of a sudden in verse two, the vibe, the mood changes, the tone changes, the vibe changes. Watch this. Uh, verse two, watch out for the dogs, watch out for the evil workers, watch out for those who mutilate the flesh. Whoa. These are some these are some harsh words. Now look what he didn't say. He didn't say watch out for the dogs, evil workers and mutilators. He said watch out 3 times. As if one time wasn't enough, he said watch out for the dogs. Watch out for the evil doers. Watch out for the mutilators of the flesh. Now who who are these people that Paul is referring to? Well, these people are what they call Judaizers. And this de the definition of Judaizers will be up on the screen. These people are called Judaizers. And what Judaizers were is that they were Jewish Christians who required observance of Torah. They required observance of the law. So basically, these were uh, Jewish Christians who they believed in the cross of Christ. They're like, hey... Jesus is, yeah, Jesus is God, um, and I believe that he died, buried, and was rose again from the dead, and he's the new Messiah. But also, in order to be a Christian, you have to be circumcised. In order to be of the covenant family of God, you have to observe kosher dietary laws. In order to be uh, the children of God, you have to follow all the Jewish festivals. In other words, what these Judaizers did is that they added requirements on top of the cross of Christ. They added requirements. You have to do these things in order to be a Christian. Now, this is tricky because what did we talk about a few weeks ago? A few weeks ago, we said we saw that Paul says you need to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Paul says that we have a part to play in our salvation, which kind of sounds like what these Judaizers are saying. Like, yeah, you do have a part to play in your salvation. It's circumcision as well, all this stuff. But notice the pattern. Notice the pattern. What Paul says in verse of chapter 2, verse 12 is work out your salvation with fear and trembling because why? It is in response to the fact that God is working in us by grace through faith. And what do the Judaizers say? They say work out your salvation with fear and trembling in order that God will work in you for his good purposes. Do you see the pattern here? Paul is saying we re really need to work hard because God's working in us. And the Judaizers are saying we need to work hard in order that God will work in us. Basically, if you have to, this is what the Judaizers are doing. They're adding requirements to the gospel of Christ. And if you have to add requirements of a plagiarized morality to the gospel of Jesus Christ, it is not the gospel. 
And the same then is true now. It's the exact same now. There's this phrase, you know, if you have to add a word to the word gospel, odds are it's not the gospel. As in, if you have to add, well, it's prosperity gospel. Well, it's, you know, uh, atonement gospel. Well, it's social justice gospel. Well, it's reformed gospel. It's Baptist gospel. It's Presbyterian, whatever. It's Anglican, whatever it is. If you have to add a word to the word gospel, odds are it is not the gospel. And if you and I add requirements of a plagiarized morality to the gospel of Jesus Christ, it is no longer the gospel. Paul's harshest words are not to unbelievers or the world or the government or the powers of the day. Rather, they are to those who claim to follow Christ, yet say that the cross of Christ is not enough. And look at what he calls them. He calls them dogs. Watch out for the dogs. This is ironic because the Judaizers called uncircumcised Gentile Christians dogs. And now what is Paul calling the Judaizers? Dogs. Paul, in essence, Paul is using their own epithet back against them for they are the ones who are, in fact, not the true covenant family of God. They are not believers. He calls them dogs. He calls them evil workers. He calls them those who work evil. This is interesting because Paul is not saying, oh, hey, we got the cross to get. We're, we're on the same page when it comes to the cross and everything else is just secondary or tertiary or argument. And as long as we agree on, agree on the cross or the gospel of Christ, we're all on the same page. No, 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 no. He is saying that people who ha- add a obligation to the cross of Christ are actively advancing the devil's schemes. They are actively working for the evil one. Their efforts are evil. Their fruit is evil. Guys, for you and I today, anybody who adds a requirement or obligation to the cross of Christ are actively advancing the devil's schemes. How many times, how, how many times have you and I said, we, you and I do this. We, maybe we don't do it as explicitly as the Judaizers, but you and I do this as well. How many times have you and I, have you and I said, well, okay, I'll just get this under control and then I'll worship Jesus. Well, I'll I'll just get this, my arms around this sin struggle, this situation, and then I know that the Lord will forgive me. I'll just figure out this mess of my life and then I can worship and I can approach the, the, I can approach the Lord. God, forgive us. You know what Paul says that is? That is an evil worker. He calls them dogs. He calls them evil workers. And then he finally calls them those who mutilate the flesh. There's an interesting wordplay going on here between this word and the word circumcision. Circumcision, uh, if you remember, is the outward covenantal sign, the outward promise sign, oath sign of a people who were in the family of God. In other words, if you were circumcised, you were of God's children. And the, pro- the entire Old Testament, the prophets realized very quickly that an external reality was not always uh, indicative of an internal reality. In other words, just because you're outwardly circumcised doesn't mean that your heart is, I mean, uh, Deuteronomy says that your heart is circumcised. So the prophets in the Old Testament very quickly realized that it's not just about an external plagiarized morality. It's rather about a condition of the heart. Now, uh, these Judaizers are saying, they're, they're looking at the Old Testament and they're looking at Jesus and they're saying, well, yes, Jesus is good and that's good. But they're saying that in order to be a true child of God, a true Christian, you have to be circumcised. Now, the word circumcised means to cut around. The word Paul, the word Paul uses when he says mutilate, mutilate means to cut off. So Paul is saying, essentially, it's pretty graphic, but Paul is saying that their circumcision is as good as if they had just cut everything off. 
as in it's not good at all. It's good for literally nothing. Additionally, worshipers of pagan gods would mutilate their flesh by cutting themselves in order to please their God. So Paul is saying that their circumcision, which by the way, Paul was circumcised and Paul called Timothy to be circumcised. There, he says that these Judaizers' circumcision is as useless and worthless as if they were cutting themselves, worshiping to a foreign and pagan God. Clearly, clearly Paul had a zealous conviction that the cross of Christ was the only means by which one can be made righteous. Do you and I have that same conviction? Or as I mentioned earlier, do you and I feel like we have to get things together in order to uh, for God to actually use me? Well, I should go a, really a few more weeks without sinning in this particular area, and then God will forgive me. Well, I ought to practice the spiritual practices and disciplines with such vigor and zeal, then I'll get to do, uh, then, I'll, 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 then I can do that, and the Lord will pat me on the back. May it never be that we here at AGC become dogs, evil workers, and those who mutilate the flesh. Why? Verse 3, for we are the circumcision. We are the circumcision. Who's he referring to? Who's he talking to here? He's talking to both Jews and Gentiles. In other words, he's talking to both circumcised and uncircumcised. This is not in contradistinction to the Old Testament. This is rather in the same vein as the Old Testament because the Old Testament says it doesn't matter if you're externally circumcised. What matters is a circumcision of the heart when the heart of stone has turned to a heart of flesh, when the dead heart has been made alive. And Paul is saying right now, we are. The, you're going to hear these liars come. You're going to hear these Judaizers come. By the way, they weren't there yet. They weren't in Philippi yet. If you read Galatians, they were already there wreaking havoc on the church and calling Paul uh, a heretic. But if you read Philippi, it's clearly a, hey, they're going to they're gonna be on their way. Watch out for them. Watch out for them. Watch out for them. So Paul is saying that uh, the Judaizers are going to do this, but really in reality, we are the circumcision. We are the ones who worship by the Spirit of God. We don't worship by a temple. We don't worship by a, a ritual. We don't worship by a rite or a location. We worship by the Spirit of the living God who lives inside of us. We boast, at, what does he say? We boast in Christ Jesus and we do not put confidence in the flesh. Then verse 4, 5, and 6, uh, Paul you know, opens up what some scholars call a resume of death, but Let's read four, five, and six, and then we'll go through them. Uh, look at the, look at verse four. Although I have reasons for con- so Paul says, do not put confidence in the flesh. Although I have reasons for confidence in the flesh. If anyone thinks he has grounds for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Okay, this is the moment when you know <clears throat> you just got your permit or license and you critique your dad's driving because you think you know everything, and your dad looks at you and says, "Boy, I've been driving longer than you've been alive." <laughs> it's uh that may or may not have happened to me uh, a few times before <laughs> paul is paul is talking to the philippians not the Juda. he's talking about the judaizers but he's talking to the philippians and he's basically warning he's basically saying boy i've been driving longer than you've been alive but to, to about the judaizers he's saying that all these judaizers they're going to come in they're going to wow you with all their accolades but i'm better than them look at this list verse five circumcise the eighth day According to Levitical code, you had to be circumcised on the eighth day of your life. Obviously, it wasn't something that you chose, but your parents chose for you. So if your parents were really religious, if they were really like good Jews, uh, they would circumcise you on the eighth day. It wasn't uh, actually it actually wasn't very common because um, there was actually a lot of like danger involved and all that stuff. But it wasn't very common. So if you were circumcised on the eighth day, you were um, 
it, it was like a big deal. He keeps going. Of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin. If you remember, Benjamin was one of the 12 tribes of Israel. Uh, one of the 12 sons of, of Jacob. And it was the only son of, Benjamin was the only son of Jacob that was born in the promised land. It was also the only tribe to stick it out with the tribe of Jerusalem and Jerusalem after this, after uh, Jerusalem, <laughs> Judah and Jerusalem after the civil war. So if you remember, there was this big split in the Northern kingdom and the Southern kingdom, the Southern kingdom was Jerusalem, uh, or it had Jerusalem, the capital, and that was the tribe of Judah. And the other tribe that was with Judah was the tribe of Benjamin. Also the very first King of Israel, Saul was of the tribe of Benjamin. And what was Paul's name before it was Paul? It was Saul. So Saul, Paul, Saul, Paul was literally named after the first king of the tribe of Benjamin. To be from the tribe of Benjamin was a very big deal. He keeps going. I was a Hebrew born of Hebrews. This just means that he was taught the Hebrew scriptures uh, and the ways of the Israelites and was trained. He was actually trained under one of the best rabbis uh, in the land. Then he pivots to things that he himself accomplished, not just an intrinsic inherited ethnic value, but rather something that he accomplished himself regarding the law of Pharisee. He was the elite of the elite. He knew the law. He memorized the law. He followed the law and he forced other people to follow the law. If he would have walked into a room, the room would have gone silent because it would have said Saul is in the house and he's going to teach us what we need to know regarding zeal, persecuting the church. He wasn't just good at keeping the law. He went above and beyond. And actually, he became a terrorist, hunting down people's like, people like animals, seeking to, to kill, steal, and destroy anyone who claimed to follow the way. Regarding righteousness that is in the law, blameless. He followed the law perfectly. According to religion, according to an external uh, plagiarized morality, he was perfect. This is the equivalent of a person who goes to church their whole life, who tithes, tithes, who doesn't swear, drink, or smoke, who can play religion so well that everybody's like, oh, they're, they're blameless, when in reality, they're dead inside. You know people like that. Maybe you are a person like that. Paul had, Paul, nobody could blame Paul for sinning because if he sinned, he would follow the, the correct procedures in order to atone for those sins, the correct sacrifices and gift offerings in order to, to get rid of those sins. And so he was blameless. But then look at verse seven. But everything that was a gain to me, everything that was a gain to me, I considered to be a loss because of Christ. Everything that I thought was an asset wasn't just a loss. It ended up being a liability to me. Why? Because of Christ. He goes on. Verse 8, more than that, I don't just consider those things that I listed to be a, 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 a loss. I consider everything to be a loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. Let me ask you this. If you lost everything, would you be happy that you knew Christ? If you lost everything, would you be happy that you knew Christ? Also, I think it's a funny, funny word there. He says, I count it all lost for the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus. He doesn't say for the surpassing value of having Christ or the surpassing value of getting to see Christ one day when I die and go to the good place or the surpassing value of praying the prayer and becoming a Christian at one point. 
or the the surpassing value of getting a a, a ticket out of hell, you know, in, a hell insurance uh, pass or whatever. He says a pre a, a, the surpassing value of a present reality of knowing knowing Christ Jesus right now. What is this? This is the expulsive power of a new affection. Everything that Paul's heart desired, he had. And now he knows uh, he has no other loves or wants or needs at all because the power of knowing Christ had expelled all other desires of his heart. And look at what he says. He says, I consider everything to be a loss. The only other time that that word is used is used of Christ in uh, chapter two, verse six, when he says Christ was existing in the form of God, but he did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited. In other words, having it all is not something to be taken advantage of. Jesus had it all, and he didn't consider it a thing to be exploited. Paul had it all, and he actually considered it a liability, something that was more useless than dung, he says. He keeps going. Because of him, I have, I have suffered the loss of all things and consider them as dung so that I may gain Christ. Look at this word, suffer. Because of him, I have suffered the loss. A lot of times, I think that Paul was glad to give up his former life. I think we think that too. Like, like we think like Paul, like, oh, he once he became a Christian, it was just, you know, happy-go-lucky from, from there on out. And he was really glad to give up his old ways because of his new ways. No, it, he, Paul says that he suffered the loss. Not just suffered after he became a Christian. He suffered the things that he loved and valued before he, came, he became a Christian. Paul lost his job for sure. When he became a Christian, Paul lost his job instantly. Think about your job. In an instant, Paul lost all of his friends, all of his friends gone for the decision to follow Christ. Think about all your friends right now. Paul lost his relationships with his family members, immediate and extended. In an honor-shame culture, if some, if you had honor because of being a Pharisee and then all of a sudden they switched that and you would then get shame because of being a Christian and therefore you would disassociate yourself with the rest of your family. Think of your family, your immediate family, your extended family. Paul lost that because of the decision to follow Christ. Following Jesus will cost you. But he doesn't just mope in those sufferings. He actually considers them as dung. Last week, uh, Tom, you know, made it clear that, you know, dung and manure is actually like good in Iowa. I, this is new for me. I'm not a, I'm not a farmer, but you know, manure can be used for a good thing. Cause apparently you just throw it on the field and it makes the ground better. I have no idea. Um, and uh, this is not that. This is something that is less than that. I was thinking of trying to think of an illustration, and I think I got one. Basically, imagine it's it's about to get cold and start snowing. Imagine it's snowy, icy, slushy, and it's like that weird like temperature where it's not like pretty snow. It's like the gross like slush, mud, salt snow. And imagine we all walked through a big old like the well basically a parking lot but then it was like not plowed correctly and so we had slush we had mud we had salt all over our shoes and we had a, a rag maybe a towel like uh, like one foot by one foot 12 inches by 12 inch towel 
And every single one of us use that same towel to wipe off our shoes in order to get them clean. By the end of the first person, that towel would be completely useless. It no longer has any value. I think of the, the, the phrase in Isaiah where it says that our righteous deeds are like filthy rags. That is what Paul views his former accolades as. And then he keeps going uh, in verse 9. And be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own from the law, but one that is found through faith in Christ or through the faithfulness of Christ. The righteousness from God based on faith. This for sure, this for sure is a allusion to uh, Genesis where Abraham, it says Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Abraham faithed in God, if you will, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now, this was not just an intellectual ascent or a, oh, I believe. Abraham didn't just look at the sky and then look at the stars and be like, oh, yeah, I believe that. Cool. No, no, no. What was his faith? What was his belief? His faith and his belief was selling everything he had, leaving his family in a, in a, in a known and comfortable land and moving uh, across the known world into an unknown land with people that he didn't know because he was promised some you know, promise by this, by this God who spoke to him. That's faith. A lot of times I think that we think that faith is, is just like, a, oh, I believe that Jesus rose from the dead and died for my sins. You know who else believes that? Demons. And they tremble. I wonder how often you and I tremble when we think of the name Jesus. Let's keep going. Verse 10. My goal is to know him. My goal is to know him. Earlier, we, we made a note of uh, Paul's comment in verse 8 of the surpassing value of knowing Christ. Paul is using the word know in an interesting way because I don't think that I would say my goal in life is to know him. And in English, English is a little tricky because our word know, it can mean a lot of different things. Like you can know how the, uh, I don't know, how a pie is made. But that doesn't mean anything, right? That it was, I didn't. My, my point is this. In our, in our uh, definition of the word know, we have a passive knowledge and we have an active knowledge, right? We have, we have a knowledge. We, we can know things passively and we can know things actively. Here's an example. Uh, I can passively know, excuse me, I can passively know how to drive a stick shift car, Right? I can passively know how to drive a stick shift car, but when, but an active knowledge is not just knowing how it works like functionally. An active knowledge is sitting behind the driver's wheel and uh, actually driving a stick shift car, right? There's a passive knowledge. There's an active knowledge. Biblical knowledge is always, always active. It is always experiential and intimate. Biblical knowledge is not passive. This, this knowledge that Paul is referring to here is not just like a, I want to know who Jesus is and I want to know what he uh, looked like or I want to know how old he was when he moved to here. That is all passive knowledge. Biblical knowledge is an active knowledge. It is an experiential and an intimate knowledge. I can prove it to you. The word for the word that we translate as to know in the Old Testament is a very intimate, uh, intimate word. We, 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 if you read if you if you read the Old Testament, you know you oftentimes hear you know Adam knew his wife, and she conceived and bore a son, or Abraham knew his wife and she conceived and bore a son. That knowledge is a very experiential and intimate knowledge. And Paul is saying that his one goal in life, 
His one goal in life is to have an active, experiential, and intimate knowledge. Is that your goal in life? Is that my goal in life? Is that the affection of our hearts, the desires of our hearts that drive everything we do? But he doesn't just want to know him. He wants to know what else does he say? He keeps going in verse 10. I want to know the power of his resurrection. We love that. We love that. I want to know the power of his resurrection. I want resurrection life right now. I want uh, a power over my sin. I want resurrection life in the future when God's going to raise me from the dead. That's what I want. But he doesn't just stop there. He keeps going. I want to know the power of his resurrection. And I want to know the fellowship of his sufferings. I want to be conformed to his death, assuming that I'm going to somehow reach the resurrection from among the dead. You want the power of his resurrection? What does resurrection require? In order to be raised from the dead, what do you have to be first? You have to be dead first. You cannot go up without going down first. Paul had one thing in his mind and his thoughts and his actions, and it was emptying himself completely of himself and being filled with Christ, being filled with the sufferings of Christ, being filled with the death of Christ, being filled with this downward mobility, this self-emptying, self-humbling, obedient love in order that he will experience the power of his resurrection. Paul experienced the expulsive power of a new affection. He felt it. He knew it. He loved it. Now, this sounds crazy, right? Like reading this, this sound, reading Paul, you know, the temptation can be to be like, well, that's just like, Paul's just like a really like good and serious Christian. Like that's just, that's just what he, uh, that's just what he is. You know, he's a, he's a apostle. So he, you know, has this like, uh, crazy, um, ideal and, um, it's tempting for us to think that that's not for all Christians, that it's only possible for serious Christians. But let me graciously remind you that there is no such thing as a serious Christian and a non-serious Christian. There are only those who are in Christ and those who are not. There are those who have experienced the expulsive power of a new affection and those who are who have not. And Paul is a Christian, which means that Paul's posture, Paul's words are possible for us to say. It is. Po- Do you believe that it is possible for you to say, even if I lost everything, even if I couldn't get what I wanted, even if I, even if I felt like the world was falling apart, I'm happy and I'm content because I know Christ. My, uh, my dad had this mindset. My dad had the mindset. My dad experienced the expulsive power of a new affection. He had the mindset of, of counting everything as lost for the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus. He had the mindset and the goal of knowing Christ Jesus, the power of his resurrection, the fellowship of his suffering. Christ found my dad when he was 16 years old. Uh, before that, my dad's heart was bent towards loving the world, loving the things of the world towards um, um, his desires were 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 distorted and uh, his worldly resume of death was ever increasing 
Yet when he found Christ, when he was found in Christ, when Christ found him, everything changed. When he experienced the expulsive power of a new affection, no matter what, from that point on in his life, my dad had this steadiness about him. He just had this tranquil, this, this peace about him, this steadiness about him. And it wasn't just a character trait. You know, some people say like, well, my disposition is to be anxious or my disposition is to be steady. No, no, it wasn't just a character trait. It was actually the presence of the living God. So that whenever my dad suffered loss, he was able to rejoice because he knew Christ, the power of his resurrection, and the fellowship of his sufferings. When my dad lost his job at a church for doing the right thing, he didn't walk out and blame the church. He rejoiced because he knew Christ, the power of his resurrection, and the fellowship of his sufferings. When my dad grieved the loss of his mother, who died early because of lung cancer, my dad suffered death up close. He didn't get angry and bitter, but he grieved well, but he rejoiced because he knew Christ, the power of his resurrection, and the fellowship of his sufferings. And when my dad got diagnosed with an incurable terminal disease. He didn't throw in the towel. He didn't curse God. He didn't act out in anger or anxiety or try to control any outcome by manipulating the situation. Rather, he rejoiced because he knew Christ, the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his suffering. A dying man, smiling, unafraid of death because he knew that he would attain the resurrection of the dead in and through Christ Jesus. Did he question? Did he grieve? Did he suffer? Of course. Paul says the same thing about himself. But my dad experienced the expulsive power of a new affection so that no matter what came his way, if he had a lot or if he had a little, if he, he had learned the secret to contentment in and through the self-emptying, self-humbling Lord of the world, Jesus the Christ. The question is, have you experienced that? As we look at the saints who have gone before, my dad and others like him and th millions and millions of others like him. And as we look at the examples set in scripture from Paul himself, from Timothy, from Epaphroditus, and as we look at the exemplar, Jesus, the Christ, the Lord of the entire world, there is a self-emptying, self-humbling, obedient love that of this downward mobility. And, the, and it changes all other desires of the heart. It changes all other desires of the heart so that everything else doesn't seem to taste good, seem to look good, seem to smell good because we have experienced the expulsive power of Christ Jesus himself. So the question is now, have you experienced that? Have you experienced the expulsive power of a new affection? Now, there's probably going to be three uh, groups of people here. Odds are you're in one of three categories. The first category is, is maybe, maybe you've never, you've never experienced the expulsive power of a new affection. You've never experienced Christ. You don't know him. This sounds weird. All, all this language of knowing him and suffering and all this, it sounds weird. But you're interested. You're intrigued. And the prayer for you is, is simple. It is not easy, but it is simple. 
And it's this, God, fill me with yourself. God, fill me with yourself. God will always answer that prayer. Maybe you're in a second category of people and you have experienced the Lord. You've experienced the explosive power of a new affection. You, uh, you know what it tastes like to, 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 to taste and see that the Lord is good. But right now, you're parched. You're exhausted. You're longing again for that the joy of your salvation. You feel like life is just another wave after another wave. It just won't stop punching you and beating you down. And you're tired. And the prayer for you is simple yet profound. God, fill me with yourself. God, fill me with yourself. And maybe you're in a third category. Right now, your cup is overflowing. Nothing seems to taste good or look good or smell good because you have tasted and seen that the Lord is good. You're feasting at the, at the table of the king of the entire world. Your cup is overflowing. The things of this world are strangely dim right now. If that's you, then praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Worship the Lord in the good seasons and the bad seasons. And for you, the prayer is simple and profound. God, fill me with yourself. God, fill me with yourself. Whatever it is, the prayer and the invitation is the same. And it is, God, fill me with yourself. Let me be found in you. Give me the knowledge of yourself so that everything else seems as lost as nothing to me. Now, if you want to stay the same in your life, right? If you're just content, just coasting, don't pray this prayer. Because if you pray this prayer, God will answer it. And you know what is required of you for God to fill him self in you in order to be filled with something what do you have to do you have to empty yourself of something in order to be filled with god you therefore have to empty yourself of yourself so if you don't want to do that if you don't want to experience that at all and you're just content like coasting right now then don't pray this prayer because god will answer it and he will change you and you will have to release idols of your heart but guys it is so worth it there is a surpassing value there is something so valuable about knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, knowing Christ Jesus, our Lord, knowing him personally, knowing him experientially, knowing him intimately. And I, I urge you to pray this prayer. God, fill me with yourself. So right now we're going to do that. And a lot of times in life, there's not enough time for silence to actually reflect. So what I'm going to do now is I'm going to give us like two minutes of silence. It's one of the spiritual practices of silence, uh, just sitting in silences. Um, because we want to offer a space and a time for God to answer this prayer. So it's going to be a couple minutes of silence. It might be awkward. You know, it might be, it might be silent, but that's okay. Uh, or it will be silent, but that's okay. Um, and I just invite you to pray this prayer with me. God, fill me with yourself. And then after these few minutes of silence, I'll come up and uh, lead us in uh, participating in the Eucharist together. Thanks again for listening, and we pray this was a blessing to you. If you have any questions or comments about what you heard, our email is info at or you can find us on social media at Gospel. Mm-hmm.